Jason Reed, there was this moment at the beginning of training camp where Patrick Mahomes got asked about a criticism he had received anonymously from a defensive coordinator in The Athletic about how he plays, quote-unquote, street ball, how he leans on that too much. But his answer, it felt like it was about an even larger observation. I mean, obviously... Uh, the black quarterback has had a battle to be in this position that we are, to have this many guys in the league playing. And I think every day we're proving that uh, we should have been playing the whole time. We've got guys that think think uh, just as well as they can use their athleticism. And so uh, it, it always is weird when you see guys like me, Lamar, Kyler, kind of get that on them and other guys don't. But at the same time, we're going to go out there and prove ourselves every day to show that we can be some of the best quarterbacks in the league. And so were you surprised by what Mahomes told that reporter? Well, no, Pablo, I wasn't surprised by... The response or the question, I was surprised by the anonymous quote because it's ludicrous. When you look at what Patrick Mahomes has accomplished, at 24 years old, he was the youngest player in the history of the NFL to have a league MVP award, a Super Bowl MVP award, and a Super Bowl trophy. The guy has played in the AFC Championship game his whole career. Two Super Bowl appearances, a Super Bowl championship. <laughs> the quote in The Athletic was about, well, you take away his first read and he plays street ball. Mm. Street ball is coded language. I mean, like, that's just the reality of it. But every defensive coordinator tries to take away a quarterback's first read. Mahomes has been excellent at when that read is taking away, going from there. The quote made no sense, and he was speaking for all black quarterbacks, past, present, and future. Because even though there's been a lot of progress made and black quarterbacks now are at the top of the game and they're superstars and franchise quarterbacks, there's still this little thing there where it's like, okay, I am being evaluated differently. And it's topical. We see it today. Yeah, and this topic, right, it is one that you personally know more than anybody. You've literally written the book about it called The Rise of the Black Quarterback. We're here to talk about that today. And I'm curious where the seed of the idea for this book for you personally began. Well, it was back in 2019. I was having dinner before the season kicked off or training camp, rather, and the preseason with Doug Williams. And I think most people know Doug Williams first African-American quarterback to start in the Super Bowl and win the game's MVP award. Doug was talking about this upcoming season and how there were so many African-American quarterbacks in the league now who are not just guys who were hanging on and were backups, but superstar, franchise-caliber quarterbacks who just happen to be African-American. Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, Dak Prescott, Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson, Kyler Murray was drafted. He was coming in that year. And the thing Doug said to me was, hey, just watch out because all we were missing was the opportunity in generations past. Now we're having the opportunities. Now we can't be ignored. And these guys look at what they're going to do this season. And it just seemed to me that something unprecedented could be happening here. These guys did have phenomenal seasons. Lamar Jackson became one of the second quarterback joining Tom Brady to become a unanimous winner of the league AP MVP award. Patrick Mahomes, as I mentioned, won the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl MVP trophy. Kyler Murray, AP Offensive Rookie of the Year. Dak Prescott in Dallas had a phenomenal year. Deshaun Watson had a phenomenal year. Russell Wilson, the standard bearer, he basically finished second in the MVP voting if anybody had it been second because you know, Lamar Jackson was the MVP unanimously. But 
it actually turned out that, yeah, Doug Williams was right about this thing because what he was saying to me is that we're now at a time in this league where this group that was arguably the most marginalized in the history of the sport, black men who aspired to play quarterback in the NFL, they now could not be denied their place at the table because of excellence. There is no influence and power and stature like that which belongs to a quarterback. I think we should probably say that very clearly up top here. There is no job like this, not in America at least. There is no position so disproportionately influential on the field or visible inevitably off of it. There is no job so culturally ingrained in our national imagination. A quarterback is a star athlete, but also a team spokesman, and also a locker room leader, and also a prom king. A main character, in other words, in what is now the single most popular television show in our country. But that show, that country, it just happened to spend literal decades refusing to cast black players in that role. So today, we ask Jason Reed to examine the unique, all-too-forgotten history of the black quarterback and how it explains some ongoing conversations that the NFL still cannot escape. I'm Pablo Torre. It is Monday, August 15th. This is ESPN Daily. Delicious meat, nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is not only are wonderful pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, wonderful pistachios has got you covered. Grab wonderful pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. So, Jason, part of the reason I bring you on here today, I must admit, is because I'm a little worried that the kids out there don't appreciate what it took to get to a point where black quarterbacks are all sitting atop this sport. And I'm also a little worried, in full disclosure here, that I myself am one of those kids. So thank you for doing this. I'm glad to do this because for my own kids as well, I I, I want them to know the history of this subject because this, this really writ large is about America. Yes. It's about what Black people did in in the previous century and this one when given opportunities. It's about the civil rights movement. It's about where we are as a country, where we were and, you know, where we're going. So I want to start with the very earliest years of pro football, Jason, because I understand broadly speaking, right, that like 
in major sports in America, black players simply were not allowed to play. What was it like at the beginning for this sport? Very different than what it looks like today, obviously. 60% roughly of the players in the NFL identify as black or African-American. Back in the early days, in the early 20s, there weren't many black players in the league. I mean, the way the owners at the time looked at it, they didn't want to give those jobs to, to black players, those, those roster spots. They didn't think that white fans really wanted to see those players. Fritz Pollard, who was actually the first black head coach, first black star and first black quarterback, he was a star in college at Brown. He comes into the NFL. You know, he was a star with Jim Thorpe, you know, the, the great Olympian. They were big rivals in the early days of the league. But you just didn't see many black faces, and that was by design. This was a league that was still struggling to gain a foothold. And, you know, you had the Great Depression. Things were really tight. These teams didn't want black players really on the team because those jobs were scarce. Mm, wait, wait, see, this part I truly, I, I don't think appreciated until just now. Because of the economic climate of the country, because of the Great Depression, NFL jobs were so rare that they didn't want those going to black people. Absolutely, absolutely. And it just becomes clearer and clearer that these owners, they weren't interested in courting the black fan. It, it just wasn't something they wanted to do. And then we get to the point where there's the ban for 12 years, you just don't see any black players. And Joe uh, Lillard and Ray Kemp, I mean, these are the last two black players in the game. They play, I believe it was the 33 season. They're in the league. And then that's it. When you say that's it, what are we talking about? It's lights out. You do not see African-American players at that point for a 12-year stretch. There, there's just, there are just none in the league. And at the time... You know, the, the, the country was even more you know, racially segregated. Jim Crow, the fact that you did not have organizations that would protest against the NFL for not having any black players on the team. You did not have anyone who could apply serious external pressure to sway public opinion. Mm. Because public opinion at the time wasn't in favor of black people being involved in things that white people would want to keep to themselves. How coordinated was this? You're telling me that coincidentally, for a dozen years, there were no black people playing in the NFL? Yeah, well, you know, the, the thing about it, Pablo, is that in, in talking to scholars for the book and, and researching the book, there is no smoking gun, or at least none has been on earth. Uh, there was no document that says explicitly, okay, we, the NFL owners, are going to get together and shut black players out of the game. I mean, you know, what we believe is it was a so-called gentleman's agreement. Uh, George Preston Marshall, the longtime one of the, of the Washington Redskins, now the Washington Commanders, you know, he's believed to be at the forefront of the decision to keep black players out of the game. He was an avowed segregationist. The Washington football team was, was actually the last to integrate. Um, but there were other owners, I mean... George Hallis, Papa Bear. He was one of the founding owners too. So hmm. there was there was clearly a decision made to keep black players out of the game, but no official document, at least none that's ever been found. Right. And decades later in your book, Jason, you talk about how 
Art Rooney, the owner of the Steelers, the aforementioned George Hallis, Tech Schramm of the Rams and the Cowboys, they all said there was no racial bias involved in the way that these demographics shook out. And to you, that sounds like what? Well, it, it, it sounds like, like what you think it sounds like. It's just not credible. Yes, there's a way you can make that argument, but it's not a sound argument. That dog won't hunt. There's no way that NFL owners could have excluded black players unless they specifically wanted to exclude black players. Because just the odds would tell you, well, there must have been some black players who were playing college football who were good enough to play in the NFL. Right, right, right. And so this mix, I mean, you outlined the forces of economic desperation, which sort of revealed the the incentives here. We want to sell players to fans that we think they want. We want white faces as the faces of our game. So how does this doesn't your ban on black players end? Well, the black press, uh, the Negro press at the time, as it was called, really deserves a, a lot of credit. You know, this has been lost to history largely, but the, the, the Cleveland Rams wanted to move to Los Angeles. Okay, this is this is in 1945-46, and California was looked at as like, okay, there's there's a lot out there, the warm weather and the, you know the, the the population surge, you know the, the you know the migration in the country, and the Rams wanted to play at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. Now, you know, the way the Rams envision in all these seats, you know, 90,000 seats, you could pack the place, concessions. And this is this is the time when the NFL, you know, now these NFL owners get a ton of money, millions of dollars from their TV packages. But there wasn't that way back then. So the way you made money was on the concessions, the ticket sales. And so the Rams envision going and playing in the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. Well, Black writers, black sports writers from the Negro press were like, wait a minute, this is a publicly funded facility. You can't have the Rams come in here without any black players on their team. Tax dollars of black people go to support the the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, just like white people. Mm. And it was actually a very persuasive argument. And the Rams really wanted to play in the stadium that they thought they could make a lot of money in. So they agreed to have black players on the team. Now, what they did was they... There was this incredible player who played at UCLA, a guy named Kenny Washington. He was actually in the same backfield with Jackie Robinson, who broke the Major League Baseball (laughs) color barrier in 1947. Jackie Robinson was a great football player as well. And the Rams thinking, okay, well, Kenny Washington played at UCLA. It's Los Angeles. He he could be a draw. All right, we're going to do it. And I just think at that time, again, we don't have any official documentation about this. Were there owners who were upset about this? Probably, but you see, they wanted to open up that market. <laughs> so money, money again, Jason, is the thing driving all of the progress and also the lack thereof. A- absolutely, absolutely. And so the Rams agree to have Kenny Washington on the team. But back in those days, like NFL players now, you know, you, 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 know, you get your room on the road. But in those days, all those guys had to room together to save money. So the Rams were presented with this problem. We'll have this black guy on a team, but we don't want him having a room with a white player. Mm. So they also signed Woody Strode, Kenny Washington's teammate at UCLA, essentially so, so Kenny would have a, have a roommate. And, and you think about it, it really is sad. But also, the Cleveland Browns, they also signed Marion Motley and Bill Willis. So these are the four guys who integrated uh, 
professional football, the NFL in 1946. Yeah, so the NFL is is, is reintegrated. I mean, this is this is the crazy. I mean, the, again, the the strange, the lost history of all of this, Jason. Once those four players reintegrate the NFL, bringing black players back formally into the league, how would you describe how the perspective towards black players at the highest levels of ownership and front offices changed? Well, it it, it changed very slowly. There was a belief that black players lacked the intellect to play the quote-unquote cerebral positions. And in terms of the jobs available now to black players, how would you describe that marketplace? Well, really, you're talking about the running back position. You could be talking about wide receiver. You could be talking about uh, the tackle positions. But the up the middle position center, which is the quarterback of the offensive line, you have to make line adjustments. Now, black people were excluded from that. Black players were because they weren't believed to be smart enough to make the line adjustments. Middle linebacker, uh, the quarterback of the defense, you have to make the defensive calls. Well, black players weren't considered smart enough to make the defensive calls. They were excluded from middle linebacker. And quarterback, obviously, the, the most important position in professional sports, black players were completely excluded from that. Obviously, now we are familiar with the echoes of that in the coded language that we talked about at the top of the show. But how explicit was this, Jason, at the time? Well, it wasn't coded. It was just, this is the way it is. I mean, no one had problems with talking about this. I mean, it's coded now because you're not supposed to say these things. But at the time, in the the 40s, the 50s, even into the 60s, and I would say really even into the 70s and the 80s, it was just understood that black men can't play certain positions because they're not smart enough which, I mean, clearly is all a racist myth. I mean, they, yes. we've had black captains of industry. We've, we've had black generals. Uh, the, there was a, a black president of the United States. No, it's but, absurd uh, to even have to lay it out like this, but of course you're right, yes. Yeah, so that's just the way it was. And, you know, the country was, was so overtly racist, it was not even a situation where white people acknowledged it because it was just, this is the way, in their minds, things are supposed to be. And there is, as we move into now, the 60s into the 70s, Jason, there is one quarterback that you spent a bunch of time writing about in your book who seems to embody all of this complexity, all of these factors that have to be navigated. And that's Warren Moon, the future Hall of Famer who happened to be a senior at the University of Washington in 1977. Tell us about what his path into professional football was like. I didn't really gain a full understanding of how bad it was for these guys until sitting down with Warren and he was telling me that in 77, he's a senior at the University of Washington and he's getting booed during home games. Mm. Washington had a very good team that year. They actually went on to win the Rose Bowl and Warren actually wound up being the Pac-8 co-player of the year, but he's getting booed at home games. And, you know, he, he told me that, you know, there was a time he would think, you know, he just wanted to flip all these people off. Like, I'm out here performing for you and succeeding for you and, and you just hate me because I'm black? And he winds up not even getting drafted, hmm. which you think about it now, that would never happen from a co-player of the year from a major conference. It just, it just wouldn't happen. Right, exactly. Like at a certain point, teams are just self-interested enough in the modern day where they would obviously take him, even if there was any sort of hesitancy racially, right? Like what was the explanation though at the time? Well, he he wanted to play quarterback. You know, Warren did something very interesting too, Pablo. When it came time for 
Uh, scouts come to the University of Washington to look at players. Warren would not run the 40-yard dash because the 40-yard dash is, is a metric NFL teams use to determine a player's speed. And once you can gauge a player's speed, you can project them at certain positions. Well, Warren's thing was, I'm not going to run the 40-yard dash for these coaches to want to move me to play, you know, wide receiver or tight end or safety or something. Mm. And when he, when he did run the 40-yard dash, because he eventually did, he would make sure that he did not perform well. And he basically tanked it. It was all very calculated because black men are not drafted, even in the late 70s, into the NFL to play quarterback. And so Warren Moon does not get drafted as a quarterback, does not get drafted at all in the NFL. Where does he wind up? Well, for many black quarterbacks in the 60s and 70s, what you would do is you'd go to Canada. Now, the Canadian Football League was a was a viable option for black men who aspired to play quarterback professionally. But the Canadian Football League is not the same thing as the National Football League or in, in, in the late 60s, the AFL, the American Football League, which which merged eventually. It just wasn't the same thing in terms of the money, in terms of the prestige, in terms of the exposure. But Warren wanted to play quarterback. He wanted to prove he could do that. And Pablo, he goes up there and just lights it up, sets all kind of records, wins the equivalent of their Super Bowl, is the best player in the league. And, you know, he made his point because after doing this for several years, the NFL eventually took notice. Yeah. And the other parallel story, and there are so many of these stories that, again, are not like truly formally documented in the depth that that you hope for today, but you tell the story, too, of your dinner partner, right? Doug Williams, who was at Grambling State. And what does Doug's introduction to the NFL look like? So he's at Grambling in 1978. He's lighting it up. He actually finished in the top five of the Heisman Trophy voting that year while playing at a historically black college and university, which just shows you how good he had to have been. And Joe Gibbs is dispatched from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to go evaluate this statuesque, strong-arm black quarterback who's playing at Grambling. Joe Gibbs, legendary Hall of Fame coach at the time, I believe he was the running backs coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And they, you know, they had the number one overall pick, and they were thinking, we need a quarterback. They're an expansion franchise. We need a guy we can build around. And it was a radical thought for them to even consider drafting Doug Williams in the first round, let alone at the top of the draft. So Joe Gibbs goes to Grambling. He spends, I believe, a, it was like a week with Doug. And he files this report. Outstanding man, you know, outstanding young man, outstanding football player, smart, has the arm strength, everything you would want. And basically in his report, in Joe Gibbs' report, he says, this is the guy to draft. Now, the Buccaneers staff and then management was presented with a difficult situation here because, you know, no black quarterback had ever been drafted in the first round of the NFL draft. Mm. And it was it was just a bridge too far to take him in at the top of the draft. So what they did was they traded out of the number one spot in the draft, picked up some other players and moved down. And they took Doug Williams as, a, as the first African-American quarterback to be drafted in the first round of the NFL draft. And Doug became the starter, and they had success with Doug. But again, it was self-interest because they saw the opportunity and they didn't want to miss it. But still, it was very surprising at the time. So they got a deal on Doug Williams, basically. Yeah. <laughs> they got to get some other players in addition. And then in terms of actually paying him, what did that look like? 
Well, you see, that's the thing, though. The Buccaneers had success with Doug. They get to the playoffs. You know, Doug didn't have the stats that you would that you would want. You know, in terms of saying uh, that this guy is clearly a a star. But that the, a lot of that went into the offense that the Buccaneers ran. But the Buccaneers didn't want to pay Doug. They didn't want to give Doug a contract that he believed he deserved. I believe he was paid one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year, which made him the lowest paid quarterback in the league. His contract was lower than a lot of backup quarterbacks as well. So he's a starting quarterback, and he wanted to be paid based upon that. But the uh, Tampa Bay ownership group, uh, they looked at the situation differently. So what's his next move? So he winds up bolting to the old USFL, and he goes there and he plays, and then the USFL folds. The league wasn't financially stable. The Washington Redskins, or the Washington Commanders now, wind up picking him up because Joe Gibbs is now the head coach of the Washington franchise. And he brings Doug in and he says to Doug, I really do think we're going to do something big this year. And I think you're going to be a big part of it. Just hang with me. And true to his word, Joe Gibbs sensed he needed to make a change at quarterback, that the team wasn't responding to Jay Schrader. He puts Doug in. Doug leads the team throughout the playoffs. They reach the Super Bowl. And Pablo, in the Super Bowl, Doug just goes off. I mean, he's throwing touchdown passes everywhere. They light up the Denver Broncos. Doug wins the game's MVP award. The PA announcer here has just announced to the crowd that Doug Williams has been voted the MVP of the game. I'm one of the guys that cast the ballot here, and I have to admit I voted for Doug Williams. Have to. And there was an acknowledgement at that point, reluctantly, that, okay, we're not going to, owners weren't going to all of a sudden go out and find a bunch of black quarterbacks. But from that moment, the perception changed like, okay, we may have to at least reconsider this. Now. All of which is to say, Jason, that these two parallel paths of Warren Moon on the one hand and Doug Williams on the other, them basically blowing the doors off of professional football. That's the thing that ended up opening yet more doors for the people who followed. Yeah, Pablo, that's what it took. And one of the guys who came in right behind Doug and Warren, who really then helped to redefine the position even more or to or to set an expectation or a standard that, okay, well, black quarterbacks can do these other things too because Doug and Warren were really classic pocket passers. Randall Cunningham was a guy who could do with his feet as well as his arm. Cunningham on play action looks. Now he starts to take off. He is bouncing around. Now takes off to the far side. He is faking and then ducking and then cutting across the 40 to the 45 and Randall with a 10-yard gain. He was nicknamed the ultimate weapon for a reason. I mean, here's a guy who can throw the ball, you know, 70 yards, 75 yards. Cunningham to throw. And he's going deep. Double cover. Oh! Barnett. Watch him run through that thing. They drop back in the zone. Now he's going to run through. Watch what his ball's throw. Look at that. I mean, that is absolutely picture perfect. He can also outrun defensive backs to the end zone. He's a second-round draft choice of the Philadelphia Eagles. They draft him out of University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And <laughs> the Eagles 
they had Ron Jaworski at the time, and they're trying to see, okay, what can this guy do? And what this guy could do was incredible things. There was this Monday night football game where the Eagles were playing the New York Giants. This is the Bill Parcells Giants, okay, when they, mm -hmm. Lawrence Taylor and Phil Sims and these guys. And Carl Banks was an outstanding outside linebacker for the New York Giants. And there's this, there's this play where he is about to sack Randall Cunningham. And Carl Banks hits Randall Cunningham. And every other quarterback would have just gone down. Somehow, Randall Cunningham was so athletic, he puts a hand down on the turf, balances himself, jumps up, and throws a touchdown pass. Look at that agility. That's a whole intro right there. Jimmy Giles, the receiver. Uh, Cunningham, by all rights, hit by Carl Banks. And he can't have been down. He maintained his balance. We talked about his athleticism. And he fires in the corner. Beautifully executed rollout. Ladies and gentlemen, Randall Cunningham is a ready for prime time player. And the look on Carl Banks' face, and I talked to Carl Banks about this, and he's just like, I did everything I needed to do correctly on that play, and he did what he did. So coming up, how Randall Cunningham doing what he did unleashed this new wave of quarterbacks upon the NFL. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with the smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky. 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Picture this. You arrive at your hotel. You have an important online meeting lined up with clients from all across the country. You have your laptop open, ready to begin. And the Wi-Fi is so terrible you can't even connect. These type of stressful situations happen all the time, but they don't have to. When you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you have access to their free high-speed Wi-Fi. So you can take care of those critical emails, join your meetings on time, and even unwind by streaming your favorite shows without having to worry. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. All right, so Jason, after generations of extremely conspicuous exclusion and prejudice and just awful scouting reports, the NFL arrives at the turn of the 21st century. And at this point in the story, is it fair to say that a tide had finally begun to turn? Because you had just described these opposing linebackers on maybe the best defense ever, basically marveling at Randall Cunningham. Absolutely. I mean, the, the respect level was off the charts. I mean, Randall Cunningham had some incredible seasons in Philadelphia. And, you know, one year, I believe it was 1990, Joe Montana won the NFL AP MVP award. But I believe Randall and Warren Moon finished second and third that year. So Randall had some incredible seasons in Philadelphia, but he didn't have the playoff success. And quarterbacks are defined in part by great statistics, but we measure them by Super Bowls now. Do you win Super Bowls? And Randall did not have the success in the playoffs. Of course, 
it's not all about one player. The quarterback has an outsized role in the team's success, obviously, but you still have to have a team around you. And the Philadelphia Eagles had great regular seasons, but they didn't get it done in the playoffs. And this theme in Philly, Jason, of an innovative quarterback being undermined by criticism of a lack of playoff success, that is a through line, right? That we can trace from Randall Cunningham right to Donovan McNabb. And so I am jumping ahead here to 2003 because this is when Rush Limbaugh is working with us at ESPN. He's at our company. And after only three months working for ESPN, he makes these comments about McNabb on NFL Countdown. I, you know, I've listened to I've, all of you guys, actually, and I think the sum total of what you're all saying is that Donovan McNabb is, re- is regressing. He's going backwards. Mm-hmm. And, and my, I, I'm sorry to say this, I don't think he's been that good from the get-go. I think what we've had here is a little social concern in the NFL. I think the media has been very desirous that a black quarterback do well. Mm-hmm. We're interested in black coaches and black quarterbacks doing well. I think there was a little hope invested in McNabb, and he got a lot of credit for the performance of this team that he really didn't deserve. The defense carried this team. But I think, Rush, somebody went to those championship games. Some, oh, somebody went. went to those Pro Bowls. Somebody made those plays that I saw running down the field, doing it with his legs, doing with his arm he has been a very effective quarterback for this football team over the last two or three years yeah, but different than the- what, we've seen- what did you think of that whole saga yeah pablo you know that was such a a monumental event in broadcasting in the nfl in culturally in this country because you had this this political commentator who was working like as you said with us at the time very conservative, you know, right-wing political commentator. And what he said was that, that the media just wants to blow up Donovan McNabb because he's a black guy playing quarterback. And, you know, it, it was unfair from this standpoint. Like, Donovan McNabb, okay, he didn't, have, he didn't have Super Bowl titles. But, remember, the Eagles had struggled before he got there. And they draft him, I believe he was taken second overall. That was the incredible 1999 draft where the first draft in NFL history where three African-American quarterbacks were taken in the first round, Donovan McNabb, Achilles Smith, and Dante Culpepper. Mm. And the thing came out of left field. I think everyone's just so shocked because, yes, Donovan McNabb was not the best quarterback in the league, but he was a successful quarterback. And the Eagles were having success with Donovan McNabb and Andy Reid, who was the head coach at the time. And it just seemed like just such a shot. like a, a, and, and it seemed somewhat unfair. And again, not from the standpoint that Donovan McNabb can't be criticized. There are no sacred cows. But Jason, the point here is that this was a guy who had gotten MVP votes in his second season, who was a pro bowler at this point, yeah, three to four times. Yeah, that actual criticism seemed to be based on something more than what this guy was doing in the field. Because if you look at what he was doing in the field, he was one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL at the time. So yeah, it was it was definitely shocking. And there was clearly a ton of backlash to it. But it seems, Jason, like that criticism of McNabb, who was the starting quarterback of a winning team, who was a pro bowler several times over at this point, it just felt like another another echo of an argument that we've heard, which is that this is a black quarterback with the reputation that is unearned. That somehow, not only did they go from being unable to play the position, but now they are getting too much credit for playing it. Yeah, unearned and unfair, Pablo, because... If someone had said, well, you know, Donald McNabb is the best quarterback in the history of the NFL, Rush, what do you think? Well, th- that, that's easy to push back against. I mean, that, that, that's very sure. easy. And, and, and you can cite data to say, well, that's why that's just crazy. But 
that seemed to be just something else going on there. And Donovan McNabb could play for most of the teams in the NFL at that point. It was clearly unfair. And you see at points in history where in the NFL, how black quarterbacks review, those comments harken back to to a different time. And part of the reason now, I got to say, it does feel so different too, Jason, is because of video games, right? Because of Madden. I want to bring that up as a factor here too, because my generation, we grew up playing Madden. We grew up seeing, if nothing else, the obvious upside of the dual threat quarterback, these descendants of Randall Cunningham, as you explained, these guys who could run and pass and do just these undeniably thrilling things off schedule, as they say in the league. And yeah, I'm still nostalgic for inhabiting the body of Michael Vick and feeling like a cheat code. First and foremost, Madden educated a a whole generation of football fans because in Madden, you were picking actual defensive sets and defensive plays and offensive plays. So yeah, from that standpoint, it, it made football fans who were kids at the time a lot smarter. But also what it did was in Madden, you actually would see the dual threat quarterback. You would see Michael Vick and Michael Vick Remember, in, in Madden, he, he was on the cover of Madden. When he, he was so fast, he would outrun defensive backs. a revelation. Back. He, he really was. He was unfair. Oh, it yeah. totally was. Yeah. He, would, he would outrun defensive backs, and he'd throw the ball 90 yards. And so you 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 saw that, and you're like, wow, this guy's incredible. Now, you know, you'd also have, like, let's say, Troy Aikman, who would drop back and throw great pass. But Troy Aikman couldn't do the things that Michael Vick could do on Madden. No, I mean, Jason, Jason, full disclosure here. They got to a point in Madden where I would rather, this is genuine truth. I would rather be Seneca Wallace than Eli Manning. <laughs> like it was just, it was just not the same game. No, it, it, it wasn't. And, and, you know, the thing about it too is, and, and this goes to representation and what it, what it means when you see people like yourself. Lamar Jackson talks about the fact that Michael Vick got him interested in, in playing football because he played Madden and Michael Vick would be his favorite player. And like Lamar Jackson may be more Michael Vick than Michael Vick. (laughs) Right. It became obvious that not only were these guys part of the scenery in football, they were oftentimes the face of the league that you wanted to be yourself. Exactly. Exactly. So Jason, now we've gotten back to where we started at that dinner with Doug Williams, where he hits again, just for the record here, he hits this six leg parlay, right? Where Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson and Deshaun Watson and Russell Wilson and Dak Prescott and Kyler Murray, they all end up establishing themselves as faces of the league, guys who are among the best at quarterback. So how would you classify where we've arrived now? We are now in the era of the black quarterback. Gone are the days when you'll be in a draft room and somebody will say, well, we're not going to take that guy because he's black and he plays quarterback. I mean, that just doesn't happen. Does that mean racism in the NFL is gone? No, of course not. But you will not see a team ignore a superstar black quarterback who has all of the intangibles and all of the metrics, you know, the the size, the arm strength, the vision. You're not going to just see that anymore. It's why we have so many superstar black passers in the game today and why there's a pipeline coming from college still. I mean, you look at it, Justin Fields and Trey Lance are, the, are, are kind of the, the next two who could be on deck. Yeah. Uh, Justin Fields of the Chicago Bears, Trey Lance of the San Francisco 49ers, who has just been handed the keys to the team. You have Bryce Young at Alabama. Um, you have the young man at Ohio State. You have the young man at USC. In five years, 
it would not be at all shocking if there were 12 to 16 franchise caliber black quarterbacks playing in the game. Mm. But like you said, though, there are two things happening. These black quarterbacks are now being celebrated and being drafted. But as we saw with the events during the first week of training camp, you know, there's still coded language. There's still questions. There are still like, okay, yeah, we're going to take you and give you all this money. But within the media and, you know, within the whispers, these things aren't said publicly. It's not it's not as overt as it used to be. But there are still whispers, no matter how successful these guys are. Because here's the thing, Pablo. If Patrick Mahomes is not a tier one quarterback in the NFL, there's no reason to have that designation. (laughs) And we are sitting here, Jason, about 100 years now, removed, as you said at the top of the show, from the very first black players in pro football, the guys who end up being the only black players in pro football for a dozen years, who then become these footnotes in history that we are remembering when you see their descendants on the field today, these guys who look like them but are also evolving so far past them, what goes through your mind? I think of evolution. I think of the fact that these guys today stand on the shoulders of the Doug Williams of the world, of the Warren Moons of the world, of people who even came before them, that that this is what progress looks like, that this is what this is what America is. not just at the top of the NFL, but the top of industry. And that, and that you know, women who historically were shut out of C-suites or now historically marginalized people are now in positions of power that they have earned. And, and, and not, just, not just Black people, but Hispanic people, Asian, Pacific Islander. I mean, there are so many people, you know, from different ethnic, racial, uh, religious backgrounds who can contribute to the fabric of America and in making America better. That's what makes this country great, in my opinion. This was a really long, hard road, Pablo, to get to this point. There were people who sacrificed greatly, who endured insults and and being ostracized and who did not ever give up because they thought about more than just themselves. They thought about the people who would come after them. And, you know, representation matters. You know, seeing people, seeing people who look like you excelling in something that you also enjoy, it, it, it can inspire people. Anybody can aspire to do great things as long as they're given the opportunity. Jason Reed, congrats on the book. And if you'll excuse me, I got to go. Got to go fire up Madden and play a Seneca Wallace again. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I, I probably would play uh, Lamar Jackson or, or, or Patrick Mahomes, but Seneca <laughs> Wallace is a way to go as well. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> 